broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network. This is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Welcome to this edition of Cultural Baggage. I'm glad you could be with us. Uh, my name is Dean Becker. Our engineer tonight is Philip Guffey. And uh, here in just a moment, we hope to bring in our guest for the evening, Mr. Fred Gardner. He's a uh, uh, San Franciscan who publishes the uh, medical marijuana journal, O'Shaughnessy's. And we'll be uh, touching base with him in just a couple of minutes. But uh, first off, I want to make a couple of program notes. One is I I'm really proud of the fact that the uh, Texas Libertarian Party has invited me to be their luncheon speaker at their convention this year. That's going to be on June 10th uh, in Houston. And I appreciate that. I'm, I'm also proud to be on the same bill with uh, Ron Paul, who will be doing the the dinner, the banquet uh, speech for them as well. You know, it's it's time that we we abandon the two party system. They have let us down in uh, numerous ways, as as we're all fully aware. And uh, I, I think the Libertarian parties uh, deserve a little respect and attention. They tell me we do have Fred uh, Gardner online now. Uh, let's go ahead and bring him on board. Hello, Fred. Hi, Dan. Uh, glad to have you with us, Fred. Um, you know, you and I had a discussion last week. We were talking about what brought us to this point, and uh, you were giving me uh, a bit of your history. And uh, tell us, what brought you to this point? Why are you publishing this uh, uh, O'Shaughnessy's Cannabis uh, Journal? Well, I could answer that on a couple of levels. For one, one thing, I have a lo I have a loved one with very severe epilepsy, and that's what originally got me interested in marijuana as medicine uh, in the seventies. When it was first diagnosed, I went to the library at UCSF and I read everything I could get in the medical literature, and I saw a couple of references to cannabis as um, as a treatment, and the the results were contradictory. There was um, couple of studies indicating that it helped and one study actually saying that it brought on a seizure and uh, this, this um, I guess we've all had the experience of having doctors give us you know two opinions that contradict each other it was a devastating it was con confusing but as an experienced marijuana user I, I, I knew that some cannabis uh, is stimulant has stimulant properties and other has uh, sedative properties, so I figured it was just a matter of time until the scientists teased out which were the stimulant components and which were the sedative components. I, I didn't realize at that point that we were in for 30 more years of, of insane prohibition. Well, exactly. There there have been those over the years who have tried to uh, study the genetics and to determine those properties. Uh, Todd Micaria, uh excuse me, has has uh, investigated that. Dr. Todd Micaria. No, uh, I, I, Todd is more of a clinician. He's looking more at symptoms and how people are, are reacting. He's not really, nobody in America is really allowed to study the strains and what the components are. We're not allowed to go to a gas chromatograph and use the simple technology techniques of you know that that analytic chemists have only in in um, 
Europe, are they doing that? England, specifically. Well, fair enough. Uh, and and I, I was confused. I, there have been those who attempted it, and I, I meant Todd McCormick. Uh, uh, that's right. Uh, Todd, well, lots of people. We have a lot of great cultivators in, in California, and I'm sure in every state. You have your local Burbanks who are trying to figure out, trying to develop strains that emphasize different properties. But the truth is without... It's, it's an extreme irony that in our so-called highly advanced technological society, that people, well-meaning, sincere people, are not allowed access to analytic labs to find out what's in this plant, which obviously has medical effects. You know, uh, I'm looking at the spring uh, 2006 edition of O'Shaughnessy's and uh, uh -huh. the, the main banner, A Day in the Life of a Cannabis Consultant. Tell us a, a bit about that story, please. Well, that's by a great uh, doctor named Phil Denny. He was a uh, emergency room doctor and a family practitioner for most of his career. He's, I think he's 57 or 58. And in the end of the 90s or 2000, he decided to dedicate his practice to monitoring people's cannabis use because he recognized the need for it. He, he goes down, he and a partner named Robert Sullivan, who also has a 25-year career as a conventional doc, they go, They split their time between Sacramento, which is the area where they live, and Orange County in Southern California, where at the time that they set up an office, there was nobody, nobody in Orange County, no doctor in Orange County, uh, willing to make this a, a uh, specialty. Uh, m many people in California, though, I, I guess, I know from a conversation with you, Dean, that be people in Texas look upon California as, you know, some kind of extremely tolerant sure. uh, nirvana. <laughs> and compared to compared to some parts of this country, it probably is. But the truth is, um, California doctors are subject to the same pressures from the federal government and from the state medical board, which has been influenced by the federal, pressured by the federal government. And so they have to... Um, they have to meet very high practice standards in order to do this. And it's it's really tragic. It's doubly tragic. First, it's tragic for the doctors who don't have the courage to make the approvals. And, of course, it's tragic for the patients who, in many cases, don't even have the courage to ask their doctors. And so what we have in, in countless cases are, are people lying to their doctors about what they're medicating with. And it's it's sad because you want to respect your doctor and you want to level with your doctor and tell your doctor the whole truth. And uh, you're afraid of embarrassing yourself. You're afraid of embarrassing your doctor. So I would say, you know, we don't have data on this, but from my anecdotal evidence, I would say a good 60% of the people in the state just don't tell their doctor that they're, they're using cannabis. And and that's the the uh, result of the decades of reefer madness. It's been pounded into our brains as some sort of uh, societal taboo, has it not? Well, I I, I think the people are way uh, the people get, get know from either firsthand experience with marijuana or from secondhand, meaning a, a trusted friend or loved one, grandma, you know, somebody who's been through it, and a didn't go crazy, and b got some kind of help with a physical or emotional problem. So the polls are, as you know, 75, 78, 80 percent. The American people know that marijuana has medical effects and it's relatively benign. 
it's the politicians and under the sway of the drug companies that don't get it. I, I think the amazing thing, you're right, we've been pounded, pounded, pounded for a lifetime with this war on drugs propaganda. You still open the San Francisco Chronicle or I'm sure the Houston Papers or the Wall Street Journal. You see these extravagant full-page ads from the drug czar's office saying, you know, marijuana will cause X, Y, and Z problems. The propaganda is relentless, but our vote in California for Prop 215 showed that the people really have outgrown it and have somehow developed an immunity to that propaganda. And that was the Prop 215 vote in 96. You have to remember, that was against Bill Clinton, Bob Dole, C. Everett Koop, Diane Feinstein, Barbara Boxer, Governor Gray Davis, all the politicians, Republicans and Democrats. 57 of the 58 district attorneys were against Prop 215. There was a huge bust in August 96 of Dennis Perone, and, and the papers made a big deal of the fact that the Prop 215 campaign was being led by a gay pot dealer from San Francisco. And in the face of all that, the vote was uh, 57% for Prop 215. So the people know where it's at. In indeed. And uh, you mentioned that one out of, was it 58 district attorneys who were in favor yeah. of Prop 215, Mr. Terrence Hallinan. That's right. All right. Uh, I, again, I want to get back to your paper, O'Shaughnessy's. Uh, first right. off, uh, this is Pacifica. Let's, let's just say a donation would be appreciated. But tell folks how they could get a copy of this. Okay, well, we don't get, we don't, O'Shaughnessy's is the doctor's journal, the pro-cannabis doctor's journal. And it's, uh, if you're interested in the subject, you'll find material in that paper that you won't find anywhere else. And the reason we don't sell subscriptions is because, frankly, we don't know how long we'll be able to sustain the paper. We don't want to take anybody's money and make a promise that we're going to do eight more issues, etc. So, so far, there have been six, and the seventh issue is in the works. And you can get it by sending a donation of any amount to CCRMG. That stands for California Cannabis Research Medical Group. CCRMG. And the address is P.O. Box 9143, Berkeley, California, 94709. I'll repeat that. It's CCRMG, P.O. Box 9143, Berkeley, California, 94709. The CCRMG is a tax-deductible charity organization, and it's a, it's a tax-deductible, whatever you send, and you'll be on the mailing list for however many issues we put out. It could go for years. I, I just don't want to make any false promises. Well, very good. Uh, once again, we are speaking with Fred Gardner. He's the editor, editor of uh, the O'Shaughnessy Journal of uh, cannabis in clinical practice. Well, I'll run you through the issue. You, as you said, the front page has an article about Phil Denny's day. He he goes through. He devotes a paragraph to every single patient who comes through in on a typical day in his office. Um, I'll just read read you. Um, the first patient is Mr. C. M., a 51-year-old construction superintendent who has a history of chronic back pain following four failed spinal surgeries resulting in a multi-level fusion. He refers cannabis to narcotics. Quote, I hate how the pills make me feel. End quote. 
he uses about one quarter ounce per week. And it goes on that there are 26 or 27 short accounts, and it really creates a uh, picture of how... Uh, what what a broad diverse group is using in terms of age and uh class and and people from all walks of life and um, a recurring theme seems to be that Denny and all the doctors are picking up on is that when people use cannabis whether it's for physical pain or emotional pain depression anxiety etc they cut back on the pharmaceutical drugs and their serious side effects and this is a very important emerging theme in the California experience. And it explains why the drug companies are, have worked so desperately behind the scenes to uphold prohibition. Uh, Fred, I, I, we are basically out of time. I, again, I'm going to try to recap this. Uh, there's a story in there about how marijuana can help uh, childhood uh, mental disorders. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it can help relieve... As opposed to Ritalin, Prozac, and the antipsychotics that they've put millions of kids on. Exactly right. Uh, uh, that it helps relieve morning sickness for uh, pregnant ladies mm -hmm. or, or even, uh, we all know, for cancer, uh, uh, chemotherapy, etc. It's a great anti-nausea drug. I haven't used it for that purpose, but that's I hear that from many, many people. And, and then the, the back page has a, an article about Rodney Dangerfield and his lifelong use. His of... widow gave a talk at a conference in Santa Barbara that we reprint in full. And I'll just read you one quote from that. It says, Rodney showed his approval letter to everyone and carried miniature versions in his pockets. Ever the worried wife, I included a copy of the letter in the memory box of his casket in case the feds were waiting for him at the pearly gates. <laughs> All right. Well, once again, we have been speaking with, with Mr. Fred Gardner, the editor of O'Shaughnessy's, and that again, that P.O. Box, C, uh, that address, C-C-R-M-G, P.O. Box 9143, Berkeley, California, 94709. Thank you, Mr. Thank Gardner. Thank you so much, Dean. Keep up the good work. Will do. It's time to play Name That Drug by its side effects. Persistent diarrhea, stomach upset, nausea and vomiting, bloody urine, fever, unusual bleeding, yellow eyes or skin, unusual tiredness or weakness, pseudomembranous colitis, dizziness, trouble breathing, and congestive heart failure. Time's up. The answer, penicillin, another FDA-approved product. The forbidden fruit, the term refers to any indulgence of pleasure that is considered illegal or immoral and potentially dangerous or harmful. At the top of the forbidden fruit list, recreational drug use. The teen years can be stressful and painful for both teenagers and their parents. To a teenager, the words do not, you cannot, and I forbid often cause the opposite behavior from the original intent. As if presented with a dare by the adult society, juveniles are curious, eager to find out for themselves. Fueled by a culture of virtual reality, extreme experiences, and instant, instant gratification, Teens feel compelled to try for themselves. Resulting dangers and punishment do not factor into the decision process. For teens, drugs and alcohol top the list. Both are illegal and easy to acquire. As adults, we all know that everyone makes mistakes. As parents, we must learn to let them make mistakes while trying to protect them so that they learn to make good choices instead of bad choices later in life when penalties are more severe. Not so easy for a parent to do in a society that prefers to punish instead of educate. For drugs and alcohol, education really is the answer. Deal with the problem by accentuating the positive instead of the negative. A UT study determined that there were, they were able to reduce binge drinking by accentuating the number of kids that did not drink versus calling attention to the minority that do. 
the UT 7 out of 10 program accentuates the positive instead of negative. Universities across the United States have rules about alcohol and drug use and often choose to handle the first-time offenders within the system through peer groups deciding the punishment versus the external criminal justice system. The idea is to nurture, develop, and grow useful members for the, uh, of the next generation, not demean, punish, and incarcerate. These institutions are dealing with the problem in a much more effective way than the criminal justice system. The government's response has been to criminalize certain teen behavior and deal with it by punitive and criminal punishment. The result, 1.9 million juveniles have been arrested for drug possession in the past 10 years. If one of these kids was yours, then you personally know the pain associated with the event. This does not have to go on, and other parents do not have to feel this pain. Lectures don't work, and after-the-fact lectures fall on deaf ears. In the criminal justice system, even if a juvenile offender is lucky enough to be given a community service, he or she is lumped in with other violators. Associating with other violators results in knowing others who sympathize with the offender, and thus it minimizes the punishment. So, since we know that some kids are going to experiment with drugs, let's give our kids the best information available that they must experiment, then let them experiment with the cleanest drugs available. But some things need to change. The drug prohibition policy has placed the dispensing of recreational drugs in the hands of drug cartels, criminal gangs, and street thugs. Violence associated with this distribution network has increased annually since the beginning of drug prohibition. It makes more sense to end drug prohibition and establish a system of regulation and control and be able to protect our children to adulthood. This is Terry Nelson on behalf of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, at www.leap.cc, signing off. Question. What is the largest and most expensive advertising campaign in history? Answer. Since 1987, the U.S. government and the Partnership for a Drug-Free America has spent close to $5 billion on anti-drug advertising. So how much bang do you suppose they've gotten for all those bucks? According to recent studies, not very much. It's always been clear that students see right through ads that exaggerate the dangers of marijuana. But research shows that powerful anti-drug ads can actually increase the likelihood that teens will try drugs. In fact, the more captivating and interesting the ad, the more likely the viewer will be to try drugs when confronted with the choice. This may seem counterintuitive at first, but it makes sense that constantly reminding teens about drugs keeps drugs constantly on their minds. Uh, have you ever had someone say something like, oh, for the next five minutes, try not to think about something? Really? Well, try it now. For the next five minutes, do not think about elephants. Well, if overstating the dangers of drugs and slick in-your-face ads don't work, what about logic? Like the ads that show that buying illegal drugs is, in fact, supporting terrorism. Well, they might work if they weren't completely untrue. Drug prohibition finances terrorism by making certain plants more valuable than gold and ignoring the fact that if marijuana was as legal as marigolds the black market would evaporate overnight truth builds trust and trust is the most important elephant element in educating teens about drugs for the drug truth network this is phil jackson all right everyone pay close attention this is your Bill of Rights. 
This is your Bill of Rights on Endless Drug War. Any questions? Poppygate. Bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin. Featuring Glenn Greenway. Afghanistan produces 33 times more heroin than Colombia and Mexico, despite being only one-fifth of their combined size. Since the U.S. invasion, Afghan heroin production has risen from 18 tons, produced by local U.S. allies in defiance of the 2001 Taliban prohibition, to the unprecedented 500 tons produced in both 2004 and 2005, the U.N. forecasts 2006 production to rise. Despite deliberately enabling Afghanistan to corner world heroin production, U.S. occupation forces are facing an increasingly hostile and dangerous environment. Deadly riots in Kabul, in which U.S. forces fired into crowds angry over a traffic accident, tragically high civilian casualties resulting from U.S. rocket attacks, and brutal Taliban execution of international aid workers have contributed to a May death toll of at least 350, by far the deadliest month of U.S. occupation. This week, the Afghan drug czar, General Mohammad Daoud, announced that the Taliban are extracting a 10% tax from poppy farmers and levying a $50 tax on each kilogram of heroin. Here at home, a rash of overdoses is being blamed on heroin allegedly adulterated with the powerful painkiller fentanyl. Detroit has confirmed more than 100 such fatal overdoses since last fall and up to 33 possible related deaths in the last week alone. This is Glenn Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth Network. This week, the United Nations held a special General Assembly high-level meeting on AIDS amid concerns that the fight against the disease was in peril. The U.S. and some other nations and religious groups are being criticized for, among other things, their opposition to effective AIDS control methods such as condom distribution and syringe exchanges. To its credit, the U.S. has pledged more money for AIDS relief efforts than any other country in the world. Yet, as a recent Government Accountability Office report noted, the money is not always spent in the best ways. Restrictions on funding and unclear guidance about these restrictions make it difficult for recipients to use the money effectively. The Bush administration stresses abstinence-only programs at the expense of more effective approaches. The overall strategy is referred to as ABC, abstinence, be faithful, or at least use condoms. Yet the U.S. puts at least twice as much funding into the abstinence and be faithful programs. Groups distributing condoms are required to provide abstinence information. Abstinence groups are not required to provide information about condoms. The U.S. refuses to support syringe exchanges and discourages outreach to sex workers and prostitutes. Efforts to set forth specific goals against the AIDS pandemic in the session's final statement are being blocked by the U.S. The U.S. and some Islamic and Catholic nations are even trying to keep out references to prostitutes, drug users, and homosexuals for fear that even mentioning these high-risk groups might endorse their behavior. Meanwhile, there are four to five million new cases of AIDS each year. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of DrugWarFacts.org. 
I, I want to once again thank our reporters. They, they do such great work. Uh, I did get the tin foil hat uh, sent off to Karen Tandy, our illustrious drug czar, Rena. And uh, here's one more reason to justify this award. She thinks that alcohol should be prohibited again. In terms of legalization, uh, it's a failed experiment. Uh, we've seen it in the United States. Uh, uh, use uh, more than tripled uh, uh, when uh, alcohol was, uh, was legalized. So legalizing drugs is not the answer. Use will increase. I want to talk about the tinfoil hat award. On May 26, 2006, Karen Tandy, the current DEA administrator, was given the Tinfoil Hat Award for daring to question whether or not alcohol should be legal. Never mind that Dean Becker himself would tell you that alcohol is far more dangerous than many of the drugs that are illegal. Never mind that the CDC lists excessive alcohol consumption as the third leading cause of preventable death in America today. Never mind the facts. Karen Tandy is a tinfoil hat wearing kook. A nutball conspiracy weirdo. However, the idea that the government is full of evil people that build and fill prisons for fun, the idea that the drug war is one big lie and that legalized crack and heroin wouldn't be worse than alcohol, now that's completely sane. Come on, you can't possibly believe this. Maybe it's time to take a step back, look at the facts, and proclaim the glaring truth. The Emperor isn't wearing his tinfoil hat. This has been Winston Francis with the official Government Truth. Whacking Day is coming to America. Oh, Whacking Day, oh, Whacking Day. October 27th, the last Saturday before Election Day. Craft a pinata or paint a picture of your mayor, your representative, or any elected official. Set up your caricature in the local park. Encourage your friends to swing the bat, hurl the water balloons, or otherwise show their feelings towards these officials, be they Republican, Democrat, or Independent. The Drug Truth Network offers $100 to the city with the most attendees and $100 for the most unique offering of thanks to an elected official. Please visit www.drugtruth.net for more details. You know, I think Winston was referring to me with that uh, reference to the emperor not wearing his tin hat. I'm going to have to talk to that boy, I tell you. Uh, okay, let's see. Uh, some news I wanted to share with you. The Drug Truth Network is going to go uh, video this summer. Late this summer, we're going to uh, do a new TV show uh, to be distributed on the access channels of North America, The Evident Truth. Uh, next week on Cultural Baggage, our guest will be Nell Bernstein. She's the author of... Of all alone in the world children of the incarcerated and we're talking about millions of children who have suffered the, through that situation uh, I urge you to listen to the Century of Lies program for this week our guests were Eddie Ellison he's a 30-year veteran and former head of the uh, Scotland Yard drug squad you can also hear Dr. Peter Rost he's the former vice president of Fi Pfizer pharmaceutical house they have uh, I believe it's uh, uh, they are the world's largest uh, pharmaceutical company. And you'll also hear from Dr. David Duncan. He's a professor at Brown University. Uh, let's see, what else is on the list here? I, I guess that's about it. I, I want to ask you to uh, please visit our other website, which is endprohibition.org. The end of prohibition is close. There is no one left on the other side to defend this policy. Karen Tandy will make her proclamations at a treatment center. 
or at a junior high school or at an old folks home, but she won't do it where uh, normal people gather because uh, they are not scientists, they are not doctors, they are cops. They are cops dealing with a health problem, and uh, it's up to us to uh, change the focus, to uh, begin to open this can of worms, and it is wormy, I, I must admit. Uh, 1.6 million Americans arrested every year for bags of flowers. Yes, it's, it's not a, uh, a proper way to run a democracy, if you ask me. You are the solution. Uh, I urge you to uh, visit our website, which is drugtruth.net, and uh, there you can uh, hear more than 200 of our programs featuring doctors, congressmen, scientists, uh, Nobel laureates, you name it, people who are willing to talk about the subject. They tell me we're about out of time, so once again, I remind you that uh, because of prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of engineer Philip Guffey, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Jack dancing on the edge of the <laughs>